Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Hello, everybody. I am finally back in my home here in Connecticut. Although I'm not going to be here for long because in a few days I'm headed back to Puerto Rico where I'll be doing my podcasts regularly from uh, the studio over there. Anyway, a lot happened over the past week as I've been traveling around the U.S. a bit. In particular, the bond market carnage that I spoke about at length during my last podcast as I expected, continued during the current week. In fact, the bond market was down every day on the week. It had a four-day losing streak, big losses. And so we finally saw a rally on Friday. The bond market recovered part of its losses. It was a pretty big rally too, but not nearly big enough to recoup the the bloodletting of the previous four days. And the catalyst for that rally was a weaker than expected jobs report uh, from the Labor Department. And I will get into that report uh, a bit later in the podcast. I want to stay focused right now on what was going on in the bond market. All of the, the yields ended the week higher, above 4%. And one thing that was very significant was that we had a uninversion of the 30 and the 5 for many, many months. I forget how long, but for quite some time, the five-year yield had been higher than the 30-year yield. Well, now the 30-year yield closed the week at 4 spot 214, but the five-year closed at 4 spot 163. Now, you still have an inversion of the fives and the tens, but no longer of the fives and the thirties. And that is the yield curve starting to normalize, but it has a long way to go because, you know, the last time we had a short-term rates as high as they are, they're about what, five and a quarter, five and a half. The yield on the long bond was I think five or 6%, somewhere in that range. So we still have a long way to go. It's because, investors still expect or bond traders still think the Fed's going to be able to bring interest rates all the way back down. And we're going to go back to that super low interest rate environment where inflation is 2% or lower. That's never going to happen. 
the bond market just hasn't priced in reality yet. It's still priced for a fantasy, although uh, the, the smoke is kind of clearing rapidly now as bond yields are starting to move higher. But the, the key is the stock market has not come to terms with even what's already happened to the bond market. Forget about what's likely to happen. Because also, as I pointed out in the last podcast, the technicals look horrible. The bonds, to me, look like they're going to get killed. And that's why they got killed so much this week was because the, pre the technical breakdown happened the week before. And as I mentioned, there's a lot of people who were trying to pick the bottom in the bond market. They thought they were going to make money in the long end of the curve. They expected uh, a rally. Uh, and now they're disappointed. And I think a lot of people have to throw in the towel on that trade. And so there's going to be a lot of selling. But higher interest rates are a problem for the stock market. The stock market should be a lot lower right now, given what's happened in uh, the, the bond market. Now, yes, the market closed down on the week. And in fact, there was a pretty solid reversal on Friday also, because we had a big rally in the morning on the weaker than expected jobs numbers, bad news being good news. But the markets rolled over. And also you had earnings that came out, uh, Apple and uh, Amazon. Amazon was a big beat and the stock was up about 10% early on. I think it closed up about 8%. And Apple also beat, but iPhone sales uh, missed. In fact, that was the third quarter in a row, I think, that we had falling iPhone sales. And, and Apple was down. It closed down like 4.5% or so. So uh, early on, though, the losses were a lot smaller. And I think as people started to think about what that means uh, with iPhone sales being down, that weighed on the market. And we had this reversal where we closed kind of near the lows of the day across the board. So maybe we have finally begun. I've been talking about that on the last few podcasts. I've been expecting a sell-off in the stock market. We just haven't gotten it. And one of the reasons is the backup in, in yields, which is continuing. And as I said, there are so many reasons why rising bond yields are negative for stocks. I mean, first of all, by definition, you have to discount the future earnings by a higher rate. But bonds compete with stocks, right? People can buy bonds instead of stocks. And if bonds are offering a better yield, well, there's competition for stocks because if you look at what their dividends are, the dividends aren't rising. And also, a lot of these companies have debt. That debt's going to mature. They're going to need to roll it over. And if bond yields are higher when they roll it over, that's a higher interest expense. So that reduces corporate earnings. So you're reducing uh, the numerator and then the denominator is higher for the discount. And so, you know, you're getting it from both ends on the stock market, but also rising interest rates make a soft landing less likely because the, the rising interest rates are problematic for everybody. Everybody's got debt and higher rates is going to weigh on the economy. Now, personally, I think the probability of a soft landing is zero, but investors don't think that. In fact, the Fed, as I mentioned in the last podcast at the last uh, press conference after that last rate hike, uh, Powell admitted that the Fed no longer thinks we're even going to have a mild recession. So they've taken any recession off the table. They still think that the most likely scenario is no recession at all. And so they couldn't be more wrong. But rising interest rates 
uh, put that into question. But not only did interest rates continue to rise, the other trend that continued was oil prices. Oil prices were up again for the sixth consecutive week. They closed near the high of the day, around 82.80. As I'm doing this podcast early on a Sunday night, oil's now above 83. We've actually taken out, I think, the intraday high from Friday in New York. We're now at 83.24 uh, a barrel. So we're up better than 30% now in this oil run in the last few months. And the oil chart looks very bullish, just like the bond chart looks bearish. In fact, it makes sense that these charts would be inverse if my theory is correct, that what's driving bond yields lower and rates higher is inflation. It's not that the markets are worried about the labor market being too strong or the economy being too strong. They're worried about inflation. And that makes sense because oil is a big part of that inflation. Oil Inflation, rather, is driving oil prices up and it's driving bond prices down, which means yields are up. But that also weighs on the economy and makes a uh, soft landing less likely if we've got higher oil prices that everybody is going to have to deal with. And another thing, too, that is that is weighing down on the bond market, I didn't even mention it on the last podcast, is what's going on in Japan. Uh, because the Bank of Japan now is, as I predicted on prior podcasts, having a lot of trouble keeping bond yields on the 10-year JGB below 0.5. And so it gave up, and it's now kind of targeting a band somewhere between 0.5, and I'm not even sure where. Right now, the yield on a 10-year JGB is 0.62. So bond yields are rising in Japan. We're almost at 1.6 on a 30-year Japanese government bond, 1.3 on a, on a, on a 20-year. But rates are going to keep moving up in Japan. Uh, they're going to have to keep printing yen uh, to slow down the rise. But that just guarantees an even bigger rise because the more yen they print, the more inflation they create, and the more incentive people have to get out of uh, Japanese government bonds. In fact, the oil price rising is an even bigger problem for the Japanese because they import all of their oil, 100% of it. They don't have any oil in Japan. And that oil is getting very expensive because not only is the price of oil going up, but the yen is going down. And so the, the yen price of oil is really rising. And that's one of the reasons that I think that the Japanese, which right now, are the number one holder of U.S. Treasuries, more than Japan, more than the Chinese. I think Japan is going to be dumping its U.S. Treasuries so it can pay down some of that debt and have you know, a smaller burden. Plus, they have to have a way of buying bonds without printing in to create more inflation. And the one way they can do that is by selling Treasuries. Because if they sell Treasuries, they get dollars and then they can buy yen. They can take those dollars and buy yen and then buy back Japanese government bonds without having to create more inflation in the process. So that is the, you know, a, a Band-Aid on this problem for Japan. They can buy themselves some time. But if they do that, it, they really hurt the U.S. because it puts even more downward pressure on treasuries because now you have the Japanese dumping treasuries at the same time, the Federal Reserve continues to sell treasuries or not roll over the maturing treasuries because it's still shrinking its balance sheet. So all this supply 
is weighing down an already saturated market. In fact, last week, the Treasury had to announce that it was increasing the size of its, uh, you know, refunding its Treasury bond auctions because the deficits are what much larger than they had anticipated. And therefore, they have to sell even more bonds to cover the shortfall. So that's additional supply that also weighed down on the market. Ironically, though, we got news on Friday from Fitch, which is one of the three uh, rating agencies out there. And Fitch downgraded uh, U.S. Treasuries. They did the same thing that S&P did, uh, you know, over a decade ago. And they took the, the, the rating down a notch from AAA to AA plus. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, news coverage of, of this downgrade. Uh, but the market just kind of brushed it off because it happened on the day on Friday where the bond market actually rallied. So even though there was a downgrade on U.S. Treasuries, investors decided that they wanted to buy <laughs> U.S. Treasuries. So they became even more following the downgrade than they were before. But the, the whole downgrade is a joke. In fact, the rating itself is a joke, whether it's AAA or AA plus. And I'm going to get into why that is uh, right after this uh, commercial break. So stick around. We'll be right back. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. All right. Before the break, I was talking about how ridiculous it is to even have a rating on uh, U.S. Treasuries. Because the point of a rating, when, when, when companies are rating a bond, they're supposed to be rating the likelihood of default. Because when you loan money to anybody, whether it's a corporation, an individual, or government, the risk is that they don't pay you back. And so... The, the credit rating is supposed to give you an idea of the, the, the strength, the credit quality of the borrower and their capacity to pay you back. And obviously, the greater the likelihood that they can't pay you back, the lower the rating. And of course, the higher the interest rate, because there's a trade-off. If there's a very low likelihood of default, then you're not going to charge that much interest. But if the borrower, you know, is a little shaky and, you know, there's some question as to whether or not they can pay back the money, well, then you're, if you're going to lend to that borrower, you're going to charge a much higher rate of interest. And so, you know, uh, all these companies want to have a high credit rating because that reduces their borrowing costs. Now, normally, a big factor in uh, judging credit worthiness is how much debt you have. Right. If you don't have any debt at all and you have a lot of assets, well, you know, you're going to have a high credit rating because, it's, you know, it's not hard to handle the debt. Um, but if you have a lot of debt already and then you want to borrow more, uh, the fact that you have a lot of debt is going to call into question your ability to repay. And so normally the more debt you have, you know, the lower your rating is going to be. Well, the U.S. government is the biggest debtor of them all. I mean, the U.S. government has more debt than anybody. 
yet the credit rating was still AAA. Now, in fact, a lot of people refer to U.S. debt as risk-free, right? The risk-free rate. So there, it's, it's risk-free no matter how much debt we have. Nobody is worried about default. Well, the reason no one's worried about default is because the Fed can print, because the government is borrowing in its own currency. See, a private corporation or a state, they can't print money. So if they can't pay, there's nothing they can do, right? If they can't raise taxes, if they can't cut spending, then, then they're going to default. So there's a real risk there. But nobody really thinks that the U.S. government is going to default. They're just going to print. Now, that's despite the fact that we just had this big you know, debt uh, charade. And President Biden, Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, warned all of our creditors, we're going to default. If we can't raise the debt ceiling, we're going to default. So clearly, if you believe them, if they were being sincere, that's not risk-free. Because what they said is that if the U.S. can't go deeper into debt, then all the people who already loaned us money, you're SOL. Because America is only going to pay its bills if it can borrow the money to do it. But the minute we can't borrow more money, you know, you're out of luck. We're not going to raise taxes. We're not going to cut Social Security, Medicare, anything. We're just going to cut the, the interest on the bonds. Right? So you're low man on the totem pole if you own a U.S. Treasury. So it doesn't really sound like U.S. Treasury debt, you know, should even be double A plus which is where uh, Fitch put it. By the way, when they moved it down to AA+, they left the outlook as stable, which makes no sense. I mean, if you're cutting the outlook because of the, you know, the big deficits, which is what they said, well, I mean, the deficits are getting bigger. So it should be on watch for another downgrade. It shouldn't be stable. So you know, none of it even makes uh, any sense. But if you believe what the president and the secretary of treasury said, well, the, the rating should be much lower. Well, obviously, nobody believes them. Everybody knows that no matter what, the debt ceiling is going to go up. And so nobody has to worry about default. But that does not mean there's no risk. There's a huge risk when it comes to buying U.S. treasuries. And unfortunately, that risk applies to all bonds that you could buy in U.S. dollars. It doesn't matter how credit worthy the, 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 the issuer is, there is a huge risk. And in fact, you don't even have to lend money. The risk applies even if you take your dollars and stuff them under a mattress. And that is inflation. That is a loss of purchasing power. And that's really what these rating agencies should be rating when it comes to sovereign credit. If the sovereign is borrowing in its own currency, then let's take default risk off the table. Let's just, okay, there's no, not going to be default. The risk is depreciation. That's the risk because depreciation is like default. If a government has to resort to a printing press to pay off its bills, then you're going to lose it in purchasing power. You'll get your money back, but not your purchasing power. So what Fitch and Moody's and S&P should be looking at when they rate the credit of the U.S. government versus the Japanese government you know, the German government, the Canadian government, the Australian government, any government, they should be looking at the fiscal situation and determine, is there a likelihood that this borrower is going to resort to printing money or quantitative easing? Or do they have uh, the ability to repay the debt honestly uh, out of tax revenue or through spending cuts? And if they honestly assessed the credit worthiness of the United States, they would have downgraded to junk status. In fact, I don't even think U.S. treasuries would deserve to be junk because 
that that would be you know too high a rating. It's an insult to junk bonds. Uh, that you're you're guaranteed to lose, right? There is no chance if you were to buy a thirty-year Treasury today at a four you know two percent yield, whatever it is, with that coupon over the next thirty years, your chances of breaking even are zero. There is no way that you are not going to lose. I'm not talking about losing dollars. You'll get all your dollars, most likely. But those dollars won't have anywhere near the purchasing power that they had when you loaned them out. So you're guaranteed to lose. So if you're guaranteed to lose on a bond, what should the rating be? Right? Because you, you know, it's supposed to be a probability that you're going to get your money back. Well, if you buy U.S. Treasuries, there is no chance that you're going to get your purchasing power back. And that is the same thing. Look, think about it this way. Because this is what the U.S. government does. Let's say, you know, some guy comes to you and says, uh, yeah, well, I want to borrow a uh, million dollars. Will you lend me a million dollars? You know, assuming you had the million dollars to lend. And you ask this guy, well, what are you going to do with the money? And he says, well, you know, I don't know, a year ago, I borrowed a million dollars from somebody else. And now I got to pay him back. And so if you give me the million dollars, I'm just going to pay back this other guy that I borrowed from. And then I'd say, well, well, if you're just going to take this money and you're just going to pay off some old debt, I mean, you don't have any assets. How are you going to pay me back? And then the guy said, well, don't worry, because in a year I'm going to find somebody else to loan me a million dollars. Then I'll take that million dollars and, I'll, and I'll, I'll give it to you. Right. <laughs> Would you lend anybody money if that was the, the, you know, the, the circumstances? Of course not. You'd have to be an idiot to loan somebody money just to repay prior debts. And the only collateral is their ability to go out and borrow more money from an even greater fool than you. Well, that's exactly what the U.S. government does every time, uh, you know, it borrows money. You know, we, we're, we're, we're selling all these bonds now, not just to cover the budget deficit, which is, you know, running close to $2 trillion. Um, but we, um, we have to constantly refinance all of the, the debt that is being accumulated as bonds mature and we have to roll it over and buy um, and the government has to borrow again. I'm trying to look up on my computer, the national debt. I'm wondering just how high it is now, but um, so everybody that's buying U S government bonds is, is, is basically loaning the U S government money so that it can repay it's prior debt. The only reason they do that is because they know that the Fed could print money, right? So if it can't get the money, if it can't borrow it from another sucker, well, then it'll just crank up the printing presses. And it's the printing press that is the only reason that anybody buys U.S. Treasuries. But at some point, they have to realize that the fact that we're going to print is a reason not to buy treasuries in the first place because all treasuries really are are future payments of U.S. dollars. So it's a rating on the currency. That's again, that's really what's being rated, not the bond, but the currency. What is the dollar going to be worth in 30 years relative to what it's worth right now? And is the 4% of your interest that you're going to get clipping coupons for 30 years, is that going to be enough to cover what you lose, plus give you some type of positive return. Because after all, you don't want to tie your money up for 30 years to get zero return. 
So not only does the interest have to cover what you lose to inflation, it's got to give you some positive return on your money. Well, that's not even close to happening with the current yield on a, 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 a 30-year treasury. But again, if the government was honest and defaulted legitimately, that would only impact people who own treasuries. But when they default through inflation, as I, I alluded to earlier, it impacts everybody. The, the losses get socialized. It's not just the people who were dumb enough to loan money to the U.S. government that lose. It's anybody who was dumb enough to loan money to anybody in U.S. dollars that loses. And even the people that didn't want to loan any money to anybody. They just took their dollars and you know put them in a mattress. They lose too. Right? They lose even more because they didn't even get any interest. But inflation is destroying all creditors of every debtor. Doesn't matter. And, and, and so the, the rating is, is meaningless. All this debt is, is junk. People need to get out of all dollar denominated debt as quickly as they can. And you know, looking at other, other rates that, that, that picked up on the week, I looked at the 30-year fixed rate mortgage and that is now up to, I think, 7.4%. And, you know, rates, I, I looked it up. The absolute low for mortgage rates was in 2021. It got down to 2.65%. There are people out there that got a mortgage that low. Uh, but now we're at 7.4. People cannot afford to pay these prices at a 7.4% rate. Now, remember, I looked this up too. The peak of mortgage rates was 1981. So it took 40 years for mortgage rates to go from a record high to a record low. The record high in 1981, believe it or not, was 18.45%. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine buying a house with an 18.45% mortgage, because somebody did that, right? Because somebody must have borrowed it to, to set the record. But that was a huge decline over a 40-year time period. And that big decline in mortgage rates is really what enabled families to buy homes, because otherwise they couldn't have afforded it, especially given how much the prices went up. Uh, and that was how they could do it. Now, there was another way. I mentioned this on Twitter. Some people took it the wrong way. But the other reason that families were able to buy homes, it wasn't just that the mortgage rates went down. It was that women, married women, got jobs and, and helped their husbands pay the mortgage. Because prior to uh, 1981, I mean, not as nearly as many women were working. They started entering the workforce in the 1970s. And again, that was the result of inflation. The dollar collapsed during the 1970s. Uh, and that was basically a huge tax increase on every guy who had a job because the inflation tax reduced the value of his of his paycheck, his income, and prices went way up and his, his salary didn't keep pace. How did he pay the bills? How did he put food on the table? Right. Well, his wife got a job because prior to that, in the 1960s, you know, married women weren't working. It kind of didn't even matter what job you had. It wasn't like you had to be rich to have a stay-at-home wife. You were a policeman, you were a truck driver, fireman, you know, janitor, whatever. You, know, you, you could still afford to support your, your wife. I mean, not 
in the same style that a doctor or a lawyer could support their wife, but you can still support her and you can support your kids. But after the huge inflation tax of the 1970s, people couldn't do that anymore. I mean, if you were rich, yeah, the doctor could still uh, support his wife, but not the teacher, right? Not the truck driver. Their wives had to go get jobs. And so all these married women contributing and the big decline in mortgage rates, that kept everybody going. That's how people were able to buy homes. Well, how are they going to buy them now? Because now mortgage rates are not super low anymore. They're 7.4 and rising. They're going to keep rising. You know, the big bond bull market is over and yields are going to keep on rising because of inflation and supply. That's what's driving it. Not growth, not jobs, but inflation and this enormous supply of bonds that is hitting the market without any buyers. So real estate prices have to go down. I mean, what are we going to do? Are we going to pull our kids out of school and get them to have jobs so we can pay the pay for a house? No, all the women are already working, right? So, you know, we've played that card. It's gone. You know, we don't have a spare, you know, worker to, to come off the sidelines and get in the game, right? Everybody's been playing. Uh, and so, you know, prices have got to go. Uh, it's just, it's, it's just a question, but of time, but also, that big increase in home equity that was made possible by artificially low uh, mortgages, but also, of course, the government guaranteed mortgages. So lending money to somebody to buy a house was also risk free because you had full faith and credit of the U.S. government. But those super low mortgage rates pushed up home prices. And then what did that do? That enabled home equity loans that gave a lot of Americans a lifeline as inflation was reducing the real value of their incomes even with two people working, they were able to cover the bills by borrowing against their homes. That was a big part of the consumer-based economy was that low interest rates enabled serial refinancing. And every time a homeowner was like kind of running out of money, he just got to tap into that well and voila, more cash to spend. Well, that game is over. Nobody's refinancing anymore. It's not even possible, right? And there's no more big increase in home prices. That's not possible either because nobody could afford to buy a home because they can't get a cheap mortgage. So that was another thing driving the consumer-based bubble economy. Well, again, that's gone. And so nobody really appreciates how much uh, downward pressure we're going to be getting on the economy from rising interest rates and the reverse wealth effect of a decline in, in home prices and, of course, stock market. The stock market has got to give, and it will as rates continue to rise. At some point, just like 1987, and that's what this kind of reminds me of, you know, the stock market is kind of, you know, in la-la land, oblivious to the carnage in, in bond land. But at some point, they're going to notice. And what's driving interest rates higher now is exactly what was driving them higher in the 1970s, the big budget deficits, the big trade deficits. The only thing we don't have yet is a big weakening dollar, but the dollar is about to crack. You know, the bond market is already gone, oil market. The next thing is the dollar. You know, the dollar index is still above 100, but it is going to crack. And then when it does, gold is going to take off. In fact, gold, again, was down about 17 bucks on the week, still around 19, what, 40 an ounce, something like that. But again, traders still don't get it. They think that these rising bond yields are bad for gold. They're not. They're actually good for gold. They're a sign of inflation. 
See, people keep looking at rising bond yields and they think, aha, it just means the Fed has to fight harder to, to kick inflation's butt. What it really means is that inflation is kicking the Fed's butt and it's impossible for the Fed to fight hard enough to win. In fact, it's already lost. And out of control inflation is very positive for gold. The markets, again, don't know this yet. There's just a lot of things that the markets don't know. Anyway, I want to uh, move forward and talk about the jobs numbers. We got the non-farm payroll numbers that came out on, um, on Friday. And of course, before we got the official numbers, on Wednesday, we got the ADP numbers. And that number kind of spooked the markets because that was a beat. They were looking for 185,000 jobs. And we got 324,000, which was well above estimates. There was a small uh, revision down from the prior month, although not so small, but it was a big number. It went from 497,000 jobs in, in, in June to 455,000. But the, the July beat was a big number. And of course, again, all these are service sector jobs, leisure and hospitality, low-paying part-time jobs that are you know boosting these statistics, but following that beat, and of course the markets, the bond market got clobbered on that. Uh, I think that there was uh, some anticipation of, of a stronger number to come out from the government. And instead we got a miss. Now it wasn't a big miss. They were looking for 200,000 and we got 187. But the fact that we didn't beat uh, was a negative, but also we revised down the prior two months, uh, both um, May and June were were revised lower. The uh, July number I'm looking at, it was revised from originally up 209,000 to up 185,000. But in fact, if you go back and look now, we've had what, seven job reports so far this year, every single one of them, Seven out of seven have now have been, well, not seven out of seven, six out of six, because we, we don't have the revision for July yet. But the first six um, numbers have all been revised downward. Now, what's the odds of that, right? Like, what's the odds of getting heads six times in a row? Not that great. So if six out of six numbers miss to the upside, what does that tell you? It's not a chance, like pure randomness. There's a bias in there in the numbers that is leading the government to overestimate how many jobs are being created if every time they err on the high side. If it was random, you would have an equal number of misses than beats, right? Just like if you're tossing coins, half are going to come up heads, half are going to come up tails, right? But if you got a string of six in a row, uh, you know, you got you, there's something wrong with that coin, most likely, right? You know, it's got it's weighted or something. It's not it's not fair. And so there's something going on. In fact, one thing that maybe is part of it is this birth death model, which I've talked about on the podcast. The birth death model is an assumption that they make, and I'm not even sure how it's made, but it's supposed to capture the jobs that are created from new companies that start up, that are born. Right? And so these new companies that everybody assumes were started during the month, they also assume that they hired workers. Now, of course, they also know that some companies are going to die out, right? That's the death part. Some businesses are going to shut down. 
and you know they're going to lay off workers, right? And so what the birth death model is supposed to do is net all that out, net out the companies that, that die and the companies that are born and come up with a number, and then how many net jobs were created. Well, the government keeps saying that we have new companies being formed and they're hiring people. In July, the number of jobs that they assumed came from new companies that they assume were created was 280,000. Now that's more than the 187,000 total jobs. And so what that means is that without the birth death model, we actually lost jobs. So of the jobs that they can track, we lost jobs. Only when you add these jobs that they make up, did we gain 185,000 jobs. Now, personally, I think that the, the, we're actually uh, having deaths and not births because the government just assumes the economy is strong and they assume that with strong economy is creating all these new companies and these new companies are hiring people. Well, I think we have a weak economy. I think companies are going out of business more than new companies are being formed. And so I think we're actually losing jobs, not gaining jobs. So I think the government is completely off uh, with its estimates. I mean, for example, and then this happened, I think, the day of my last podcast, but I hadn't noticed it. But Yellow Freight, right, one of the largest uh, uh, shipping companies, uh, you know, truck companies in the United States, filed for bankruptcy uh, last Friday. Out of business, 30,000 jobs lost. About 22,000 of those are Teamsters, union jobs, high paying jobs. That was part of the problem. That's why the company's out of business, because the unions you know, took too much. I mean, they, they would not make the type of concessions that Yellow needed to survive. And so there's another company that the unions have driven out of business. Of course, the worst part about it is that the U.S. taxpayer you know, bailed out um, Yellow following COVID to the tune of, I think, $700 million was basically given to this company that obviously is going bankrupt now. So it was a complete waste of money. That money went into the pocket of the union members, right? They, they, they got paid a lot more money than they would have got without that bailout. And I think the stock had this big rally as a result of that bailout money. And so that allowed a lot of the executives, you know, to cash out their stock options. And they made some money too, all at the taxpayer's expense, by the way. And, you know, it's not all the union's fault that the company's out of business. Part of it is management, but the big problem with management is that they caved into the unions. That was the problem. And one of the ways they were able to pay what the unions demanded was by going into debt. And it was cheap to go into debt because interest rates were really low, but now they left themselves in a situation where they go bankrupt, right? And so this is what happens. This is why there's so few uh, union jobs left is because they destroyed all the companies that they work for. Where you have the most unionized workers is government. Government workers are still there because you can't destroy the government, unfortunately. No matter how inefficient you make the government, they stay in business because they have a captive audience, the taxpayer, and they just pay whatever it takes. And so that's why public sector workers shouldn't even unionize. It, they should be not allowed to do that. I mean, even FDR, right, the champion of the labor union, even he said that if you work for government, you shouldn't be in a union, right? That's a job. If you, if you choose to work for government, then you give up the right to be in a union, especially the right to strike. How do you strike on the taxpayer? You know, this whole thing is incestuous because the unions are bargaining with government. The government's not paying their salary. The taxpayers are, but the taxpayers don't have a seat at the table. 
And then what happens is the labor unions help elect the government that they're negotiating with because the biggest donors to these political campaigns are the labor unions. So they buy the politicians who they negotiate with. So they're negotiating with themselves and the taxpayers get screwed. So this whole thing is a racket. But in the private sector, you know, if the unions destroy the profitability of the companies, well, the companies go out of business. And that's why so many U.S. manufacturers, one major reason, they went out of business. And that's one of the reasons we have these huge trade deficits is because we destroyed our own manufacturing capability. And so now we we have to import from abroad. You know, by the way, this uh, loss of uh, yellow, not only are we going to lose 30,000 jobs, which I guess are going to show up in the uh, the next jobs numbers, but now we're going to have fewer trucking companies to compete with one another. What does that mean? Shipping costs are going up. I mean, not only are they going to go up because um, gasoline prices are going up, but there's less competition in the shipping industry. Now, so that means the trucking companies that are still in business are going to have to carry all the merchandise that Yellow used to carry. Well, they're going to have to raise prices. They're going to have to pay their drivers overtime. You know, Now, maybe they'll pick up some extra trucks. Maybe they'll hire some of these drivers that just got laid off. But clearly, you're going to see uh, a, a bigger move up in shipping costs, which, of course, affects everything because everything we buy has, has got to be shipped. And so when shipping costs go up, all that gets passed on. And so now everything gets more expensive. Anyway, let me look a little bit more at this jobs report. The unemployment rate, I guess that was the only you know bright spot, or I guess negative, depending on how you want to look at it. But the unemployment rate went down from 3.6 to 3.5. How'd that happen? Well, obviously, you know, people left the labor market who used to be looking for jobs. That's the only way it could have happened because we really didn't create any jobs at all. Again, if you subtract the birth death assumption, we lost jobs. Manufacturing was another negative, right? That recession continues. We lost 2,000 manufacturing jobs in July. The estimate was for a gain of 5,000. You know, Joe Biden's been out there lying to the public, talking about this manufacturing renaissance, how we have a boom in manufacturing. Now, of course, to be fair, Donald Trump told the same lie. I mean, every president wants to lie to the voters and pretend that there's a manufacturing renaissance going down, that going on, that they brought back manufacturing, but it's a lie. Their manufacturing is shrinking. Manufacturing jobs are going away. Our trade deficits are exploding because we are manufacturing less. Ours were average hourly earnings rather rose more than expected up 0.4 and year over year it was an even bigger beat up 4.4 versus the 4.2 expected wages going up again that's going to factor in the higher prices but it's not the wages that are causing the prices to go up what's causing wages to go up is the same thing that's causing prices to go up because wages are prices that's all they are what is a wage? It's the price you pay to hire labor. A wage is a price, just like a cost. A cost is a price. When people try to say rising costs cause prices to go up, that's not true because costs are prices. What is my cost? It's the price I pay to buy things, right? It just depends on how you look at it. It's two words. Cost and price are two names for the same thing. One person's cost is the other person's price. Why do wages go up? Why do costs go up? Why do prices go up? Inflation. Inflation is what's driving everything up. 
Why do we have inflation? Because the government is running massive deficits and the Fed is paying for it by printing money because there's no such thing as a free lunch. If we're getting government, we're paying for government. If they're not raising our taxes, they're debasing our money. But one way or another, purchasing power must be transferred from the private sector to the government to cover the expenses. And, and, and that's what's going on. By the way, the, the work week, average work week actually went down, which is a negative side. So yes, we're paying workers more, but they're working less. Hours work went from 3.4, uh, 34.4 hours rather, to 34.3. So that was uh, a negative number, again, which fuels or feeds into uh, my forecast of, of recession. But I'll look through some of these other numbers that came out on, on the week. Uh, Chicago PMI for July, that was another miss. It was better than the prior month. The um, uh, June number was 41.5. That's horrific. They were looking for a rebound of 43 and a half. We rebounded, but not quite that high, 42.8. So that was a weaker number than expected. Dallas Fed Manufacturing, um, a very weak number, but slightly less weak than expected. They were looking for minus 22 and a half. We got minus 20. That was a little bit better than the prior month, which was minus 23.2. But the production index actually was weaker. It was minus 4.2 last month. And in July, it was minus 4.8. So overall on balance, I would score that one in the uh, weaker than expected camp as well. Let me see what else I got here. I got a big list of these. Uh, PMI manufacturing final. All right, that came in at 49. That was about in line. But again, anything below 50 is contraction. ISM manufacturing index a slight miss. They were looking for 46.5. We got 46.4. But again, that's another contractionary number weakness. On the jobs front, too, on Wednesday, we got the jolts number. And that was also weaker than expected. They were looking for 9.6 million jobs or 9.65 million jobs openings. We got 9.582. So that was a miss. And there was a revision from the prior month from 9.8. 2.4 to 9.616. The interesting thing about that is the bond market still got killed on Wednesday. So even though we got a weaker than expected jolts, which over the past few years had been a catalyst for a bond market rally, even though we got that, the bond market still sold off. That's how weak it is. Uh, PM, uh, PMI composite, the final for July, that was 52, so a little bit above 50 because of the service sector. The manufacturing is still in recession. Services peaked up a bit, but with the increase in interest rates, the increase in um, uh, oil prices, I think that is going to reverse. Factory orders in June, actually, that was one of the rare uh, positive numbers. They were looking for uh, up 1.7, and we got up 2.3. So that was one of the few uh, stronger than expected um, reports that came out on the week. Uh, but most of them are weaker here. ISM service index, again, that one is what's pulling up the ISM. But even that was a little bit weaker than expected. They were looking for 53, and we came out at 52.7. Now, just because it's above 50 
that's not a strong number. It just means that it's not a contraction, right? So you have kind of a little bit of expansion in that. But when you when you take the service sector and uh, the manufacturing sector and combine them, uh, you're, you're overall in contraction. But again, I think that the ability of your typical American to afford to consume services is going to be diminished because their paychecks are being diminished, not only by inflation, but interest costs are going up. Um, and, and, and therefore, people are going to have to spend more of their diminished incomes paying interest on the money they already borrowed to buy stuff. So how are they going to borrow more money to buy new stuff when it's so expensive to repay the debt or even service the debt on the money they borrowed to buy the stuff that they already bought? So this idea that the economy can continue to grow, even at a slower pace, is belied by all of the evidence. You just have uh, investors for now uh, haven't connected these dots. And it's not like, you know, it's a mystery here. It's not hard to do. When you have a consumer-based bubble economy and the consumer is powered by artificially low interest rates and inflated asset prices, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see what's going to happen here. <laughs> that that the air has got to come out of that bubble. And the question is, when is the Fed going to do what the Bank of Japan is already doing? The yield curve control. When is the Fed going to say enough is enough when it comes to interest rates because of the massive burden these rising interest rates are going to place on the federal government, on state governments, it's not just the federal government. Think about all the money that state governments borrowed over the last 10 years. That is short term as well. That stuff, those bonds are maturing. They've got to be rolled over. Now, the states can't print money. So where are the states going to get the money to pay the, their debts? They're going to have to raise taxes. They're going to have to raise property taxes, which, of course, makes it even harder to buy a home. Because not only are the mortgages going up, but the taxes have to go up. And of course, your insurance is going way up. Maintenance is going way up. Everything about owning a home is getting more expensive. The only thing they can give is the price. But as the states are having to raise taxes to make higher payments on their own debt, that saps the consumer of purchasing power. Corporations, again, they're going to have to pay more to service their debt. So that means they have to take it out of wages or they have to raise prices. But one way or another, somebody's uh, purchasing power is being diminished as a result of that. So th this, this is problems for everybody. We've been, we've been riding a wave of cheap money. And now that wave is coming, crashing down on our heads. And nobody has figured this out. You know, the, the investors out there are just looking at these bond yields and just assuming that inflation is going to come back down and it's going to be the status quo all over again. That's never going to happen. That was the aberration. We're never going back to that fantasy land again. We have to live in reality. We are a massive debtor nation. 
we have an unprecedented amount of debt. And that either means interest rates skyrocket or inflation skyrockets, one or the other. And it's much more likely from a politically expedient perspective that what's going to give is uh, inflation. We couldn't cut spending when the Republicans had the White House, when Trump was president, when in his first two years he had a Republican House and a Republican Senate. No cutting of any spending when the Republicans were in charge. There's no cutting of spending when the Democrats are in charge. And even when we have mixed government, spending doesn't get cut. There's no political scenario where spending gets cut. There's also no scenario, really, where you're going to have big increases in taxes on the middle class, right? Everybody wants to take the middle class off the table because the middle class is already struggling. The only one anybody is willing to tax is the rich. And even there, it's difficult because they still haven't been, been able to increase taxes on the rich. Why is it? Even the Democrats won't tax the rich because the rich are paying for their campaigns. <laughs> so it's like tax increases are off the table for everybody. The only tax any politician is willing to increase is the inflation tax. Why? Because nobody realizes it's a tax and they can blame it on somebody else. And as long as they have a cooperative Fed, which they have always had, and it seems like they always will, ever since uh, Volcker, right? And, and, and Volcker's gone and Powell is no Paul Volcker, then that's what's going to happen. And that's exactly what I've been positioning for for over a decade. I knew for years that we would end up exactly where we are right now in this predicament. All the years that politicians promised to cut spending in the future, I knew those were empty promises. I knew those future spending cuts would never happen. Every debt deal we ever had in the past was a scam. The politicians never live up to the promises. The only spending cuts that count are the ones in the year in which they're enacted, and that never happens. They're never willing to vote for a spending cut that takes place during their term of office. It's always in the future, and now they won't even vote for those. So inflation is not only the path of least resistance, it's really the only viable path forward. And again, that's why the bond market isn't worried about default. But what they need to be worried about is inflation, and they're starting to worry about inflation. And the other two markets that you really got to pay attention to, because bonds have already broken to the downside, oil is broken to the upside, the key markets you got to watch are the dollar, foreign exchange, and gold. When we really start to see the dollar go down with the bond market, not an inverse relationship, and when we see gold breaking out, when we see gold rallying with oil and ignoring uh, rising bond yields, right? We really want to see interest rates, long-term interest rates, and gold going up together, right? When all that starts to happen, right? You see bonds down. Dollar down, oil and gold up. Pretty much it's game over. At that point, you got to see a crack in the equity market. I mean, the equity market may be the last one to really break. Who knows uh, what it's going to take? I mean, maybe again, we've already seen that. We've had some reversals, but it's too early to call that. But personally, I would think that the dollar and the gold market might be the bigger movers. And then we get the stock market. Because the stock market held out a long time in 1987 before it finally crashed. But when it finally caught up to the rest of the markets, it, it did it in a big way. And we may be looking at something similar to that 
uh, later this year, early, early next year. We'll see. If it's similar to 1987, well, it'll happen in the fall, which is coming up, right? That was October of 1987. And, you know, if it does, I'll be covering it uh, on this podcast. Anyway, that's it for today. Thanks, everybody, for listening, putting up with my uh, uh, makeshift podcast as I've been on the road over the summer. Again, I will be back in Puerto Rico for the next podcast I do and for uh, many, many more to come uh, until, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, maybe Christmas break or something like that. Anyway, bye for now. 